Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA today. I tell you what, this has been a very busy week with the midterm elections happening on Tuesday. It is we go to the show here today. All of the results have not yet been brought in. However, we do have some of those results coming in already. As of now, leadership in the Senate is still undecided. There are still several Senate races that are up for discussion out there, including Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and Wisconsin. Though Senator Ron Johnson is winning in Wisconsin. Last I checked, about 98% of those precincts were reporting. Um, Iowa Senator Charles Grassley, expected to be a tight race, ended up with a 56% share of the vote. He will stay on the Ag Committee in this next Congress in the Senate side. And on the House side, minor shakeups so far in the House Ag Committee. Uh, Glenn Thompson, G.T. Thompson, a representative from Pennsylvania, did win his race. He's currently the ranking minority member of the House Ag Committee. Now he will move into the chair of that position in the next Congress. And Representative David Scott, who was the head of the House Ag Committee under the Democrats, is now expected to likely be the ranking minority leader of that committee when this next Congress gets started in January. A few other votes were worth watching as well yesterday, notably for all the discussion in the cattle market space about increasing competition, increasing processing facility, both in, in cattle and in hogs, I should say. There was a lot of discussion about what was underway in Sioux Falls. Holstone Farms was looking to build a large hog slaughterhouse. They announced plans just about two years ago. This year, a consortium of local individuals had put up a plan to try and stop that slaughterhouse. Uh, Sioux Falls was holding a, a vote to ban future slaughterhouse construction, and that vote failed. 52 to 48, the ban in Sioux Falls will not go into effect. Holstone Farms likely excited to move ahead with their plans to get that plant under construction, though it's likely also that the legal challenges aren't quite done as well. All of those things will continue to move markets. They'll change the way money works, and on top of a much-watched report coming out today, the USDA supply and demand estimates, and then tomorrow, consumer price inflation, or the inflation report, CPI data comes out on Thursday morning. All of those things likely will change the way money moves in the ag economy. And we're not seeing too much of that take place this week in the cattle sector, but that industry continues to move along. Joining us now for an update is Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company. And Chris, with the supply and demand estimates, the WASDE report coming out today, any chance we could see some life move into this cattle market? It's very possible, Mike. I tell you, there's no shortage of information flow out there right now. But what we have to look at, especially with the Wise Report, we're not looking for great many changes on there. The USDA may increase the, the yield by, by a, a bushel an acre, small adjustments like that. But when we look at the cattle market, with the prices really high at the retail levels, the box B still trading above 260, cattle prices at 154, these are already really high prices. And if we expect to see cattle prices to go even higher, we've really got to find some way to entice or encourage that consumer to be willing to pay a higher price or consume more. And I just don't see that right now. Well, Chris, and I mean, I think that's the focus that's going to move into the center stage of attention here tomorrow with that inflation data. Box beef over 260. How many times have we seen that in the past? You know, it, it, we've never before, until we had the uh, incidents with the COVID where it ran up above uh, close to over $400. When it came back down, just recently over the last two months, we've seen it come back down to a low of about 252. Now it's come back up to around 264, 265. These are still exceptionally high levels when you consider previous highs of box beef were around 255. Chris, when we're thinking about those highs in box beef, always those get worked into the margin calculators that we use to figure out what packers are making. And of course, they saw some pretty fantastic margins over the past 18 months. I assume with inflation, those margins have become a little more compressed. 
Oh, they have, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier about increased packing capacity, and that's what's helped. We know that the labor shortage has uh, has gotten better. We know that there's more employees are not having to run as many shifts anymore. We've been killing between 650, 660,000 head a week. So our, our ability to process these animals and the uh, lower herd size that we've had is just not making any kind of uh, difficulties for the packers right now. Well, that's true. And this smaller herd size kind of started to create some some difficulties for cattle feeders just securing animals. Let's talk a little bit about where you see this feeder cattle market going here as we get through winter. Chris, what do you expect to see? You know, there's not a lot for it really to do right now. The the weather has impacted our feed costs to such a, a significant amount that expansion is probably not going to take place anytime soon. We're going to have to say to the cow-calf producer, we need to encourage him enough to where he can hold back uh, enough heifers to begin to make a difference. And, of course, we know that takes multiple years to do that. But what we're all really asking him to do is take a cut in his revenue stream because every heifer that he holds back without having a really high price on it right now, you're just asking him to take less money for multiple years. And then once he does start having more inventory to sell, by that time everybody else does too. So any of the price advantage – Today, he doesn't get to participate in that, and in all actuality, he's going to try to grow that herd by buying more cows and buying more heifers and then having them drop babies and hold them back. That's a real revenue uh, piece chunk coming out of the farmland without any kind of return for 12 to 18 months. That's a great point, Chris. And as you think about the cost of gain of, of these feeder cattle right here for producers who have made some purchases over the past two months, you know, north of 180 here on feeders, how should they be managing those input costs looking ahead to this next growing season? You know, I think we have to look at the corn. Again, today we'll get the WISE to report, but there are corn at this price still just under $7 a bushel at harvest is really expensive. So we look at aspects of it could drop $2 and, and be at four seventy, and everybody would be much happier unless I own it at six seventy. So options, I think that, that if you would look into options and they explore the risks and rewards to them, that it, it – does just what the statement is. It gives you an option. If you need that corn and it's a higher price, now you have the option to buy it at a lower price. If the price goes down, well, then you have the option to not exercise your, your uh, option, futures option, and you can buy it at the cheaper price. All of that costs a little bit of money in order to do that, just like we try to insure our cars and homes. But for that, we, in return, get significant backing to say, this is where I'm going to end my increase of costs at this level. That's a good point, Chris. And even though costs of options are up, the total cost of what you're protecting is up substantially as well here over this past year, which I assume helps make it pencil. Oh, absolutely. Phenomenal. You know, it's $6.70, or you're looking at a $33,500 contract for corn. So that adds up pretty quick when you're feeding a load of cattle. You have to have several loads of those if you have several loads of cattle. So I think it's very important, and we look at energy costs, especially diesel fuel, right up at the contract highs, just a few cents off, and having made over a dollar rally just in the last six weeks alone. So those factors right there are going to consistently eat into the cattle feeder. They are, folks. That slow grind of higher prices is something to keep an eye on. Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company down in Nashville, Tennessee, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. Chris Bliley, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs with Growth Energy, will join us with an update on that sector when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning, while the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? 
But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to... um, fly by that this year. Um, we know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that. So we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, but the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, in the Gosh darn it, nearly 20 years that we have had the renewable fuel standard here on the books in the United States of America. One ongoing complaint for folks in the industry has been the delays that we have seen habitually from the EPA in releasing the renewable volume obligations, the amount of ethanol that must be blended, not ethanol, but biofuels that must be blended into the nation's fuel supply. The ethanol industry has been pushing back on it, and earlier this year, Growth Energy took EPA to court and secured a consent decree to get those RVOs out for 2020. 23 as soon as possible. Joining us now for an update on that situation and other factors impacting the ethanol industry is Chris Bliley. He's the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Growth Energy. And Chris, I know we were shooting for that November 16th deadline for the RVOs, but there's been a little bit of a delay. Yeah, that's right. And good to talk to you, Mike. Um, Certainly frustrating um, that EPA has come back yet again for an extension, uh, but we did uh, consent to a t- two-week delay with the explicit understanding that EPA wouldn't come back to the well for any future delays on the deadlines under our consent decree. But what's really important is that we held the line that these would be finalized by June 14th of next year for the final rule. So certainly frustrating that we're not going to see the proposal here for another couple of weeks, but more importantly that we hold the line on what will be the final RVO in June of next year. That is a great point, Chris, and I'm glad you brought that up. So with this proposal now being delayed two weeks, of course, there will still be that comment period afterwards. Do we have any expectation yet of what the EPA is going to rule when these numbers come out? Well, I think we, you know, we keep hearing different things. Uh, we haven't gotten anything sort of firm. I think what we can expect is, is you know, commitment to, you know, a strong volume that we saw in 2022. Um, EPA committed to those additional 250 million gallons from the earlier litigation that we won, as we saw in 2022 as well. 
I think we can also expect to see this be, be a, for the first time, a multi-year RVO proposal, whether that's two or three years, gives a little more certainty to everyone um, that this will be beyond sort of one year. Um, and, and we certainly take Administrator Regan at his word that uh, there won't be any backtracking. So um, I think this is uh, really important that, uh, you know, we have this consent decree in place that we're going to get those final volumes and get this proposal out here in just a couple of weeks. And that will uh, be time that we'll see. All right, Chris. Well, I'm curious about those volumes. Recently, we've seen a lot more discussion ramp up over the small refinery exemption waivers uh, that were handed out largely under the Trump administration that are now in court. And I'm curious, I know uh, Growth Energy has gotten involved in that court case. How are things going there with those SRE waivers? Well, I think, you know, we're very pleased that the EPA and this administration has really ended the years of abuse of these refinery exemptions. I mean, we saw unprecedented impact on billions of gallons of biofuels. Um, and with, you know, their final RVO last year, they effectively ended that abuse. Um, there is still ongoing litigation, uh, but we're hopeful, uh, you know, again, that the, the courts will side with with our arguments that they, that the refineries, you know, if they're able to show disproportionate economic hardship, they can get that refinery exemption. But simply saying that we don't want to comply with the RFS is is not means for them to be exempt from the program. Okay, well, that certainly makes sense. I'm wondering, is there a connection between these 69 cases that are pending about the SRE waivers and the RVOs? Will a decision in that court case impact the, the renewable volume obligations, or are they two totally separate issues? Well, ultimately, they're tied together because the volumes are you know, tied to what an obligation is for a, a refinery. So um, if refineries are exempt, you know, we have always argued that 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 volume should be made up by the other, you know, other refineries who are participating in the program. And where the problem comes is that if refineries are exempt, and then that volume's not made up, then you know it really comes at the expense of biofuel producers and farmers. So, in that manner, they are tied together. Um, again, I think we're very hopeful that an EPA has put a lot of you know, a, a lot of weight behind their decisions to, you know, deny these exemptions uh, and really end the abuse that we saw over the past couple of years. All right. So we'll watch these two things pending that pending RVO uh, proposal coming out at the end of this month. And of course, that ongoing court case. Chris, I want to turn our focus to other things happening in D.C., which is the conversations heating up about the Inflation Reduction Act, specifically how tax credits for biofuels are going to be calculated. I know Growth Energy has recently weighed in promoting the GREET model. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Uh, sure. So a, a couple different things. I mean, it, it really important for uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. These credits are tied to the carbon intensity of biofuel producers uh, in, in our case. And so what is really important is that Treasury use the best available science to really measure the carbon intensity for, for plants. And so we submitted a letter to the Department of Treasury um, outlining, uh, particularly for sustainable aviation fuel, that the GREET model, which is run by U.S. Department of Energy's Argonne National Lab, is really the gold standard when it comes to modeling, and that that should be used for carbon intensity measurement of sustainable aviation fuel. It's critical that uh, that producers be able to use that model to really implement, you know, the president's call for the grand sustainable aviation fuel challenge and so that we can really maximize benefit for not only biofuel producers but for farmers as well. Um, Chris, you know, and beyond oh, that again. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just I'm curious about this GREET model. This is the Argonne National Laboratory. This is US government data. It's it's checked repeatedly by scientists and I'm curious we've heard this come up a lot. It sounds as if government agencies are are usually trying to look at other models. Why are there competing models in this space? Well, it, it, it's a great question. There are a number of different models. Um, you know, EPA has used a different model for the renewable fuel standard. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of people have really focused in on the Argonne-Greet model. California uses it, Oregon uses it, and Washington State is poised to use it for their clean fuel standards. 
Um, and it really does reflect sort of the best available science out there. And, and you know, we, we do see other people use the model and sort of add their own iterations, but it's really important to focus in on the Department of Energy's Argon-Greet model because that really reflects the best science, particularly around land use, particularly around the ag inputs that go into that model as well. So, Chris, when you're thinking about applying these models to these tax credit discussions from the, the Treasury, how does the selection of the model impact the value of the credits? Well, it, it, it's imperative because all of these tax credits, the clean fuel production tax credit, um, is based on the reduction in carbon intensity. It's a performance standard. So essentially, the lower you go, the more value you get for your, your ethanol, in our case, um, or sustainable aviation fuel, or whatever the case may be. And so if you don't use the right model, and if you don't have a complete and granular look at life cycle analysis, plants are losing out on value because they're not getting measured for all the innovations and technologies that they've deployed at considerable expense to reduce their carbon intensity. That's a great point. These tax credits are going to the ethanol producers, and they're designed to help them expand their production. Isn't that the end goal? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, look, you're talking about you're talking about projects that create jobs. You're talking about reducing greenhouse gas emissions and really going to the goals of not only this administration, but states and others to, you know, to provide more jobs in, in rural America as well as reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the only way you can really do that is complete and accurate measurement of life cycle analysis at these plants. Got to have the right ingredients, got to have the right measuring stick if you're going to get the right measurements. Chris, looking out over the next couple of weeks, of course, upheaval in D.C., do you expect any news events here for ethanol before we get to the 30th? Well, I mean, I think certainly everybody's keeping an eye on election results. Uh, we saw a number of bipartisan uh, members of Congress, uh, you know, either reelected or newly elected uh, who are supportive of biofuels like ethanol. Um, it will be anxious to see how that shakes out, particularly when Congress comes back to session uh, here next week. Um, and certainly keeping an eye on, you know, funding for the government beyond, uh, you know, beyond the end of the year. Um, so I, I think those are the things where people are going to be keeping an eye on things here in the next little bit. Certainly a lot to watch for. Folks, we've been speaking with Chris Bliley, the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Growth Energy. Chris, thanks for joining us, and thanks for holding EPA's feet to the fire on those RVO issues. Thanks, and great to talk to you. Folks, stick around. When we return, we're going to talk elections as well, but not U.S. elections. We're going to take our focus back down to Brazil with Pedro Deneca, so stay with us. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex premium diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to um, fly by that this year. Um, we know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that. So we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, but the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at the market trade ahead of the November WASDE report. Things are relatively firm and quiet on this Wednesday with grains down just a little bit in quarter beans and wheat futures are down a little bit. Traders are going to be watching closely in the WASDE report uh, a couple areas, corded soybean yield as well as uh, export demand for both corn and soybeans, whether or not we see 
changes there. That's going to be the two areas that could yield any sort of surprise, it appears, in the WASD report. But of course, we'll see what the numbers say at 11 a.m. Central Time. We see livestock trade relatively mixed and just kind of quietly cautious ahead of the WASD report as well. The dollar strength is pressuring uh, export opportunities and pressuring the markets as a whole as well. We're watching the fallout from the midterm elections on the macro side of the equation. The stock market down a little bit. The Dow down about uh, 230 points with crude oil down about $1.60. And we're seeing that the midterm elections, the results uh, still looking for some different results at a few uh, states across the country, but looking like the Senate could be a stalemate and the U.S. House could go to the GOP. We'll have to see if that actually is the case, though. Overall, Mark's just kind of treading water, waiting for direction from the November WASD report. Outside of that, we're watching the global issues with Russia, Ukraine, and whether or not that grain deal will be extended. It expires on the 19th. We're seeing woes with China's economy again, weighing into our market trade, worries about export demand between the U.S. and China, and also the possibility of a rail strike as early as November 19th is something else to watch in this market trade. But today, it appears to be all about the WASDE report. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. You know, it will be over the next days, weeks, and potentially into December that we are still talking about the midterm elections in this country and trying to figure out how they are going to impact the direction of the broader economy, certainly, but specifically the agriculture sector. We'll continue to discuss that on the show going forward. But in the meantime, there's another big election that happened, just not in our hemisphere. Down south of the equator in Brazil in October, they had a presidential election at the end of the month. Lula da Silva was elected the new president of Brazil at a time when Brazilian farmers are getting that those grains in the ground. I figured it was time to check in on how things look down there in Brazil. Joining us to do that is Pedro Deneca. He is a founder and partner at MD Commodities. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Mike. Pleasure being with you guys. Before we jump into it too much, let's talk about your history. Pedro, Brazil is, is no stranger to you, is it? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I was born and raised in Brazil until uh, 16 years old. I lived there, uh, left, uh, chasing a uh, college basketball dream here in the United States and, um, you know, came up, ended up playing college basketball and a lot of uh, history in between. Um, Then uh, once I graduated, I started working in the commodities, uh, financial markets, then commodities markets. And in 2008, started working with clients in Brazil uh, mostly now farmers and uh, big, you know, some of the, the medium-sized large farmers down there. And today we cover about uh, just about 10 million acres of land um, between cotton, soybeans, and corn production in Brazil. Wow. It's 2008 till today, Pedro, you have seen some incredible changes in modernization to Brazilian agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen, the growth and sort of the mindset that farmers have down there in Brazil? Absolutely, Mike. You know, something that I, I always uh, enjoy talking about, uh, especially overseas, right? I just came back from a conference in Europe and, and trying to explain 
to the folks in the Black Sea region, uh, really the sustainability of the growth uh, in, in Brazil, not only production, but also in their capability to export. And here in America, right, when I do my rounds and uh, doing speeches and talking to folks in the U.S., I think it's very important, number one, that um, we understand that just because there is this sort of rivalry, uh, we don't have to be enemies. I say that. I say, look, the, the Brazilian farmers can help the U.S. farmers, the U.S. farmers can help the Brazilian farmers, and, and, and vice versa. And really, the world needs a very healthy American agriculture and Brazilian agriculture. Really, those are two um, very, very important regions in the world. So things have really, really changed in the last um, yeah, 10, 15 years. Uh, I, I'd like to use corn as an example. Uh, Brazilian corn production was barely even talked about until about maybe five, six years ago. Uh, and Brazil not, now not only has increased their production uh, very aggressively in the last 10 years, but uh, it is now challenging for the top place in world exports of corn. And we actually believe Brazil will become the number one export of a corn uh, by 2025. So those are huge developments that the more educated the American farmer is about that, the better that they can prepare uh, and the better they can hedge, the better they can plan uh, so they have better sustainability in their uh, activities. You know, that's a fantastic point, Pedro. For years, Brazilian farmers have had to keep track of what's happening up in the U.S. in order to make their moves in the market. And now American farmers are going to have to pay attention to what's changing down there in Brazil. Pedro, I want to pick up on that export conversation. We have seen a lot of olive branches between China and Brazil here over the past two years. Where do you see that relationship going long term? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very interesting question, especially now as we see relationships between China and the U.S. sort of deteriorating, and, and I think we're all trying to figure out uh, what impact that's going to have in the long-term uh, export potential, right, for U.S. Uh, uh, grain, oil seeds, et cetera. So um, what I can tell you is that uh, Brazil and China have uh, strong relations. Uh, Brazil tries... Uh, the best it can to stay as neutral as possible in the, in the world geopolitical stage. Um, you know, historically, that's been Brazil's role to, to try to stay as neutral as possible. The reality is uh, that China is prioritizing uh, purchases of Brazilian products. When you talk about, you know, the new deal just signed, signed about corn exports. Um, when you talk about the soybean export situation where this year, even in a drought year, Brazil is still going to export, uh, going to export about 65 to 70 million metric tons uh, of soybeans uh, into China, right? So it's, um, it's a relationship that is growing, um, and I believe it will continue to grow as long as there's economic incentives for both sides. Well, and that's the key, that economic incentive for both sides. Pedro, when I hear folks from Brazil or, or other places around the world discuss the challenges in that country, the one that comes up time and time again is logistics, the, the struggles Brazilian ha growers have getting their products to the ports to get them exported. Are you seeing on the ground improvements in logistics in Brazil? Absolutely. And I think that is, I, I'm very happy you brought on that question because it is a misconception um, that many, many folks have that just because logistics was an issue, you know, five, seven years ago, that it still continues being the way that it was. Let me clarify my statement. Uh, absolutely, Brazil has issues uh, in, in the logistical side of things. Things are far, far, far from perfect, uh, from perfect, and there's a lot of room for improvement. That being said, uh, when you talk about a lot of room for improvement, there's a particular area of the country that very few folks understand and know about, which we call the Northern Arc. Basically, you have ports in the Northern Arc of the country uh, that go out, uh, basically are equivalent to uh, the Gulf in the U.S. as far as distance to, into Europe, Asia, etc. And that has really been a game changer for Brazil, especially in the last 10 years. To give you an example, um, now over half of Brazilian corn exports go out via the Northern Arc ports. So uh, we no longer rely solely or, or mostly on the southern ports of Santos, Paranaguá, Rio Grande, etc. Et we actually have, Brazil actually has multiple options uh, going out via uh, the, the northern bo uh, border there on the Atlantic side. And, um, you know, it, it's something that really has been a game changer. Now, internal logistics have to still improve quite a bit 
you know, Brazilian farmers still have to rely a lot on trucking uh, to get their uh, grain to the ports, but also the northern arc situation is changing some of that. And so we need to be aware of that. So the, really the growth that Brazil has had in exports, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, it was not long ago, uh, we're talking 2014, 2015, uh, U.S. still led Brazil in soybean exports. U.S. was still the number one soybean exporter in the world. Uh, we're now talking seven years later, and Brazil uh, is about to double the U.S. in exports of soybeans. Literally, it's something that is about to happen in the next year or two as long as there is enough production in Brazil. So if this year, for instance, the production is indeed 150 plus to where, you know, where CONAB and USA are putting it, um, Brazil can easily export 90 plus million metric tons. And we believe U.S. exports are quickly headed down uh, towards 50 or sub 50 million metric tons, which would be right around 1.8 billion bushels, 1.85 billion bushels. So, um, you know, those discussions need to be had. And, and I think it's important, like you, you put it perfectly. Uh, it used to be that only the Brazilian farmer had to understand what was going on in America. Uh, and I absolutely agree with you. American farmers have to understand and not just be caught in perceptions or misconceptions about what's happening in Brazil. Great point. Folks, we're talking with Pedro Deneca of MD Commodities. Pedro, we did just have this presidential election down in Brazil. The ag industry didn't appear to be a friend of Lula da Silva. He recently won. Are there any major policy changes expected with this new president? Yeah, that, that election, um, you know, the election result has not been uh, very well taken by the ag community in Brazil. Uh, the, as, as a whole, the ag community was uh, very, very strong supporter of Bolsonaro. And especially when the election, uh, the results were so close. You know, it was historically close. Lula uh, won by basically 2 million votes, you know, in a country of 200 million people. That's, that's a very, very slim margin. And, and so we're still seeing some um, movement down there as far as, uh, you know, potential recounts, et cetera. We don't know what necessarily is going to happen. But uh, assuming that, that the results stay as they are. Um, there's a lot of noise being made regarding what Lula can potentially do to agriculture in Brazil. Um, but we also have to remember uh, folks that uh, say things like that, that listen, Lula was president of Brazil between 2002 and 2010, which was really uh, when Brazilian agriculture uh, started growing quite fast, you know, and so uh, there are some of his policies in the past that absolutely um, the farmers uh, despise, let's just say, uh, but at the same time, uh, we believe that it will not prevent Brazilian agriculture from growing. Again, uh, the economic incentives, in, in our opinion, it's still going to be there, and we believe Brazilian agriculture will thrive, whether it's Lula or anyone else uh, running the government. You know, and that's a good point you make. Lula's been in power during a commodity boom before and uh, largely worked out well for ag, is my understanding. That's exactly right. We, we seem to forget that. You know, everyone wants to talk about Argentina, for instance. Well, Argentina, when the left took over and, you know, they had, now they have all of the uh, export taxes, et cetera, et cetera, and the farmer is holding and not selling. And uh, listen, uh, Brazil and Argentina are very, very, very different despite being uh, neighbors. You know, so it's, uh, uh, it's something that we always have to keep in mind. The dynamics of what's happening in Argentina uh, could not be uh, more different than they are on what's happening in Brazil. So we need to understand uh, the, part, you know, the, the dynamics of each country to be able to do a better analysis. We certainly do, folks. Pay attention to what is happening down there in Brazil. Pedro Deneca, great resource to do that. Pedro, how can folks find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter, at uh, CHB Chicago. And uh, also you can find me, uh, put my email in here, it's uh, Pedro at MDC Brazil with an S. MDC, thank you, Pedro. We'll Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. With Harvest wrapping up, Channel Technical Agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on Harvest and an analysis of Channel's product performance this year. Don, thinking back to the weather this past year, did it set up any pest concerns? Absolutely. We had northern corn rootworm pressure, which was fairly high this season. Uh, beetles were present in cornfields and bean fields throughout South Dakota, even farther west than what we've seen in the previous years. And we saw a clipping of silks, which led to susceptibility of diseases entering the ears, such as corn smut. And when performing root digs, it showed larva feeding. So overall, this pest is robbing yields. So I recommend that for 2023, you protect your yields with smart stacks or smart stacks pro hybrids and consider an insecticide of planting. That's Don Gustafson with an update on channel products this year. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to... Um, fly by that this year. Um, we know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that, so we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, but the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will, will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly three million times against the competition. How many? Three million frickin' times. Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. The show continues here this morning. And I tell you what, folks, as the show continues, so does the weather across the country. Joining us for an update, both on the winter weather system moving across the northern plains and on that tropical system coming in on the southeastern part of the United States, is Greg Solier, noted meteorologist of This Week in Agribusiness. He joins us now. Greg, let's start in the northern plains. This snowmaker that's coming through, who's going to get the most of it? Uh, well, uh, for now, it, it has been, and this is a good thing. Yeah, hard to believe on the November calendar day, but a fair amount of some of the uh, spring uh, winter wheat areas, the spring wheat areas of, of Montana. Yeah, I know it's a challenge already with livestock operations, getting things where you needed to be for wintertime, but this happens on occasion. And uh, yeah, for now, it has been the sections of Montana, anywhere between five and 10 inches in some of the favorite spots. Now it's round two uh, and the main body of the storm system uh, that has a nice little jet stream curve to it. And so that means the air is lifted and uh, the way the sausage is made, well, here comes this Arctic air, the rain, which has come down through upper Michigan and northern Wisconsin. Wisconsin, back into parts of Minnesota, expanding there uh, and to the Red River Valley of the North. We'll be shifting over to snow as we move on through this afternoon, tonight, and tomorrow. And it will be that wet packing variety, wind blow. And I dare say, I know we have the winter storm watches and warnings up in effect from the Arrowhead to uh, the weather advisories in through Nebraska, storm warnings across the Dakotas. But this takes on the B word, a blizzard. Uh, so heads up there, livestock managers, bin and barn operators from the Red River into the Arrowhead, uh, north and west of the Twins. And even uh, by Friday, snow coming on down in the parts of northwest of Wisconsin. So that's, that, that is a rude awakening. They have basically moved from, you know, some semblance of a late summer early autumn weather pattern same with the plains and the heartland the corn belt uh we've bypassed and will bypass fall and move directly into almost a midwinter feel around these parts here over the next couple of two or three days sub-zero cold at night single digits by day and probably a hard freeze all the way down into west texas cotton country where a couple of snowflakes can't be ruled out as well that is an abrupt shift in weather i would say sir yes i think it is indeed greg with that system happening in the northern plains do you see anything developing here across the central part of the Midwest and Southern Plains over the next couple days? Uh, other than the cold, and again, that'll come as a shock root of the system, considering, you know, most days is fall season, uh, temperatures have averaged 5, 10, 15, and in the parts of the Corn Belt for the next couple of days, 15 to 20 degrees above average, then you swing it in the other direction, probably a temperature drop of some 50 to 60 degrees. Uh, that's really going to be the story. Not much in the way of significant moisture, so yeah, some of these outstanding corn and uh, soybean uh, harvest numbers uh, should continue to make some progress, I suspect even in the cold air, but again, tough on livestock, uh, outdoor operators and workers, uh, been in barn walls, et cetera, so forth and so on. And again, outside of maybe a little rain down in Texas, a couple of snowflakes uh, possible, it will be a look and feel of midwinter time. And I think even next week, mid to late next week, there's a system that may generate a little rain and snow as far south as the Southern Plains, Central and Southern Corn Belt uh, into the Ohio Valley. So yeah, right into more or less a December to January feel across a good part of the heartland here in the days to come. Well, that is certainly good news. And as we think about the northern reaches of the inland waterway, they could certainly use the moisture. Greg, the snowfall that's falling now, I imagine it's probably going to melt here before we get too deep into winter. Yeah, I, 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 I hope so. But now, you know, we're thinking and looking at uh, maps and charts that extend out a month. And we do that on the big TV show every uh, week where you're, we're going to take a look at weather into Christmas. And, and at least through Thanksgiving, I don't have a lot of optimism. We'll go through thaw free cycles. The grounds are warm. And yes, some percolation absorption, maybe some of that moisture trickles into the mid and uh, upper Mississippi River Basin areas. But the meat and potatoes has been through the northern Great Lakes region moisture wise there. And uh, the system next week appears to be a light one. But the cold is going to be locked in for a good two or three weeks around here. We'll begin to moderate as we get uh, into the month of December, would you believe? But this is the vanguard to what La Nina's do. Cold air surges, moisture around the periphery of them. So uh, just a matter of time before things get a little more winter storminess over the rest of the core belt and points on southward. Well, Greg, there is a weather system pushing back on that expansion of cold front, of course, tropical storm, perhaps now Hurricane Nicole off the coast of Florida. Give us an update on what's developing down there. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, probably going to move ashore as a Cat 1 uh, hurricane and uh, saw some interesting data that uh, that system will make a run up the Appalachian Trail. There's only been four named systems that have made their way into the Carolinas, especially North Carolina, and during the month of November. Yes, it is late in the season, but these things happen, and it's a big old hole in the atmosphere in that southeastern part of the country that allows the jet stream to come southward along with the Arctic air that's been built up through the Canadian prairie. But yes, yeah, significant wind. It's amazing, and rain and storm surge, but this time on the Atlantic side, you get one side that took on the effects of Ian. This won't be as severe, but certainly enough to catch your attention. Citrus as well takes a hit Orlando on southward, but mostly a prolific, substantial rainmaker that hopefully eases the drought conditions into parts of the Carolinas and southeastern states. But that system will wind its way up the Appalachians, line up with that cold front, then we kind of bomb out or explosive development of this loam. And then we just allow for a series of systems that continue to drop southward, significant lake moisture, lake effect rain and snow, and series of trials that kind of keeps this cold air all the way to the Gulf Coast. There'll be some frost or freeze down past I-10 and I-20 in the deep south and southeastern United States. So this is a pretty impressive cold air surge due in part to Nicole making her run up the Appalachians and across the Western Atlantic and out to sea over the next three to five days. Greg, this looking at the weather maps right now and the and the radars, this is more moisture uh, I've seen falling across a larger area of the United States than I've seen in quite some time. Is this indicative of a larger pattern shift? Uh, a pattern shift, yes, into colder. And yeah, you make a good point because it was the western states that really took on initially the bronc, uh, the uh, moisture into the central and southern valleys. It's been several years since we've had this storm, this scale so early mind you, early in the rain season, if you will, across California, the West and the Pacific Northwest. So there's some good news there. Don't think it'll be terribly long lasting. It's only the Southwest, the deep South and Southeast that stay kind of wetter and more active, but much of the country moving into a much colder weather cycle here over the next two or three weeks probably takes us up through Thanksgiving itself. And if we try to moderate this cold, it doesn't take much to trip off moisture. Hence the thinking this is La Nina still in the high overdrive. And again, moisture of significance as we get deeper into the and winter season as well. Indeed, winter is here. Greg will have a great forecast for us this weekend on This Week in Agribusiness. In the meantime, Greg, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, my friend. And folks, tune in tomorrow. Arlen Suderman, Chief Economist from Stonex, will be with us. We'll break down today's world agricultural supply and demand estimates from the USDA. We'll see you tomorrow, folks. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. At Bravance, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times! Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word. Take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds. It's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons.